It uh, is good to see all of you here on Family Day weekend. I was expecting a very small group in the first couple of rows, but uh, it's encouraging to see so many. And uh, those of you who are here maybe for the first time, we are, as Kim said, in Mental Health Month on the subject of depression. We've had two sessions already, a cultural perspective on depression, and then last week, a psychological perspective on depression. And uh, the messages and the notes and the videos, etc., are all online. So you can go online uh, at CAP Church and can pick up uh, the information that you may have missed along the way. Uh, again, for those of you who haven't been here, uh, I'm not just talking about this subject. I embody the subject. I've struggled with depression for most of my life. Um, struggled technically with dysthymia, which is low-grade depression, sort of like a low-grade fever that doesn't overwhelm you, overwhelm you all the time, but it is present a lot of the time. And I've had a couple of major dips in my life and uh, still continue to struggle to integrate this into my life and have been on antidepressants for many years. So I just say that for context for those of you who uh, have not been here the last two weeks. My goal today is a simple one. This is a massive subject today, and I must admit, even though I prepared well, I feel completely overwhelmed as I start, uh, because this is a massive subject of a spiritual perspective on depression. And so given the length of time that we have, I'm going to look at one particular perspective on spirituality as it relates to depression. And inevitably, some of you may come to me after and say, like, don't you believe in this, or don't you believe in that, or don't you believe in this? And more than likely, I'm going to say, yes, yes, yes. But I'm not talking about everything today. I'm just talking about one thing. And here's what I would like to do today. And this has been deeply encouraging for me in my life, this perspective that I want to bring today, and even in my preparation for this morning, has been deeply encouraging for me. And that's my hope for those of you, either here listening or listening online later on, that if you're a Christian and you really want to walk deeply with God, that's really your heartbeat, but you also struggle with depression, to encourage you that you can do both that you can both walk deeply with God, with all of what that means, and you can still struggle with depression, that it is not choosing one over the other. So that's what I would like to encourage us in today. Now, once we raise the question of spirituality, we immediately get into big, big questions in theology and philosophy. And we could spend many, many weeks talking about what spirituality is about and talking about what spirituality really means in a, in a deep way. And every tradition, every uh, physical tradition, theological tradition has a way of talking about this. But I want to suggest to you that in order to understand spirituality, we need to first of all understand what it means to be human, what it means to be human. And those of us who are raised in the evangelical faith who often divide life simply into sin or righteousness, we forget the fact that we're human. Uh, the best way to deal with that is to see how inappropriately many Christians handle little babies. There's a number of little babies in this church, which is one of the great things that's happened in recent years at CAP. Uh, so you go up to one of these little babies after the service and you look at it, and if you ask the baby, so... Are you living a life of holiness or are you living a life of sin? Like, 
first of all, the baby's not going to respond. We know that, number one. And number two, it seems like a bizarre question because this little human that's been created by God and created in God's image is not, is not living a life of holiness or a life of sin. This little life is just living humanly. That's what it's living. And one of the things that happens to us, particularly in the evangelical world, that very quickly we want to move into dividing everything into sin and to righteousness. And I don't know what that's like for you, but like I get up in the morning, I, I work, I'm on my computer, I drive my car, I relate to my wife, I relate to my daughter, I have friends, I'm on email, I eat food, I sleep, I think of people who are going to die, I think of people who are having babies. Like it's just human stuff, right? Like it's not, when I relate to Bev as a somebody that I'm in relationship with, I'm simply living humanly. And so what does it mean to be human? A simple acrostic, which I talked about last year when we talked about anxiety, human is we are physical, we are in a body. Every one of us in this room is embodied. So that's part of being human. When God created us, he created us in a body. We're relational. The first nine months of our lives, we were in deep, intertwined relationship, and that does not change subsequent to birth. We're emotional. We both experience emotions and we express emotions. We're people of action. We do things. We behave. We're cognitive people. We think and we have the capacity to think about thinking. That's part of being human. We all have a history. Could be a good history, could be a bad history, could be a dysfunctional history, could be anything. But all of us who are human have a history. We're in environments. We are people of place and space. This is the way God has created us. Those of you who've had a baby here in Vancouver, your baby's home, what starts in Vancouver. They're in a place, they're in an environment, and that will influence what they are like and how they will be. And then lastly, we are spiritual. We are connected by the God who's created us. We're created, all of us are created in his image, and we have the capacity for transcendence, to look beyond the earthly experience and say there must be more. Hence all the sci-fi movies. Hence all the desire to look at other things. Hence the desire to get beyond the earthly and the things that are bound to the earth. There's a spiritual component in everybody. And even people who claim to be agnostic or claim to be atheist are still going to all kinds of spiritual things. Go into a cafe on the North Shore. And you'll see all kinds of spiritual things advertised. They're not Judeo-Christian. They're not based on the Bible. They're not based on Jesus. They're not based on the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. But they're spiritual because that's inherent in all of us. But the question, of course, is how does the spiritual connect with the human? I talked the first week about how I try to avoid as much as possible highly spiritual Christians because highly spiritual Christians act as if there's something about being spiritual, but all the other stuff doesn't matter, like, you know, driving my car or going to work or being on my computer or hanging out with friends or talking to my daughter or talking to my wife or, you know, buying groceries, like, that's just not of God. So that must be irrelevant. Well, most of us spend like 80% of our time doing this. So what are we saying? Like if I'm talking about the Bible and God and thinking about God, like that's, that's truly life and all this other stuff like driving to work. Look at all the wasted time you're spending at work. Well, no, that's how does spiritual connect with human? We are created human, that little baby that's created. Well, I suggest to you there are two ways to approach this. One is to say the spiritual is in opposition to the human. 
And the second way is to say that the spiritual is part of being human. And there's two versions of the first one. There's a spiritual version of the first one, and there's a secular version of the first one. What's the spiritual version of spirituality, or spiritual is in opposition to being human? It goes something like this. If you're truly spiritual, you won't pay attention to the human. If you're truly spiritual, you'll kind of avoid or deny the human. And the more spiritual you are, the less you'll take the human seriously. So you're not worried about this little baby relating to this baby, congratulating the parents. Like, we're just going to pray that that baby becomes a Christian when they get older. Like, that's the most important thing. It doesn't really matter. Diaper changes, feeding, you know, all the stuff that goes on. That's irrelevant stuff. Well, this baby, somehow now we're going to make the baby and the baby's experience as different than spiritual. There's a spiritual version of that. The secular version of this is to say that the spiritual is in the opposition to what is human, and the way that we're truly human is to avoid the spiritual. And it's very interesting to me, and we'll see an example of this in a moment, that there are secularists out there who sound like highly spiritual Christians. Because what they're doing is they're taking the spiritual and the human And the highly spiritual people are saying, well, the human doesn't really matter. It's really the spiritual that matters. And we go to our atheist friends, our secularists who don't believe in God, and they say, it's really only the human that matters. The spiritual doesn't really matter. So to be truly human, I have to deny and avoid the spiritual. Or to be truly spiritual, I have to avoid and deny the human. And it's very interesting that people on the extreme right and people on the extreme left often sound the same. The core of what they believe is very similar because they're not taking the human and the spiritual and bringing them together. They're actually taking the human and the spiritual and putting them apart. And of course, when it comes to mental illness, it's very interesting what happens in the realm of mental illness. Because in the realm of mental illness, what occurs on the spiritual side is we have people, and I've had people say this to me directly, that if you're really serving God and you really have trust and faith in God, you should not be taking your antidepressants. This is an indication of your lack of spirituality. So it's very helpful when you struggle with depression, you've got a psychiatrist, you take your antidepressants, and then you talk to somebody and they say, let me share this with you. If you were truly spiritual, you wouldn't be doing any of those things. And I always want to say, thank you so much for the pastoral care. Because it misses the heart of spirituality and humanness. But the spiritual version of that is to say that somehow I either have deep faith in God or I take my antidepressants. Those are my two options. And it's an either or. It's not a both and, it's an either or. But then we have the secular version of that and it goes something like this. What are you talking about your relationship with God and your depression? Why? What's God got to do with it? God doesn't have anything to do with this. The transcendent, the spiritual, the thinking about things beyond this world, that that doesn't have anything to do with your depression at all. Just stay on your antidepressants, see your psychiatrist, know you struggle with dysimia, know that it's going to go on the rest of your life. Forget the God stuff. What does God have to do with any of this? And so interesting, what you get is one version that's spiritualized that says, you know what, you're going to be really spiritual, you deny the human. And the other side, the secular version, if you're going to be really human, deny the spiritual. So we're going to watch two brief video clips. And those of you like Joel Osteen or like Matt uh, Dillahunty, please, you don't need to talk to me after. I know both of them have good things to say and they're not all bad and all the rest of it. Some of you know Joel Osteen, motivational speaker, pastor in Houston, 
uh, lots of books, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then some of you know uh, Mal Matt Dillahunty, who is f somewhat famous, not totally, but uh, used to be a Southern Baptist, very strong fundamentalist evangelical, who converted to atheism and now is one of the big atheist spokespeople. So I don't know if this is the first time at CAP we've had an atheist speak on Sunday morning, but we're going to hear Matt Dillahunty in a moment. What I want you to listen for, and if you love Joel Osteen or hate Joel Osteen, I'm not playing this to feed into your passion, okay? What I want you to listen for is how Joel Osteen approaches antidepressants and how Matt Dillahunty approaches antidepressants. And particularly how they frame the spiritual and the human. So listen to these two clips. What happened? She was having to take man-made tranquilizers because she wasn't releasing the natural tranquilizers that God put on the inside. Could it be that you would receive the healing you've been longing for if you just lighten up and learn to laugh more often? Could it be that the headaches, backaches, migraines, chronic pain, chronic fatigue, even depression would go away if we just take time to play, to laugh, to enjoy the life God's given us? It's interesting, when my mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer in 1981, this is one of the things that she did. During the day, instead of going to bed, instead of sitting around feeling sorry for herself, thinking about her problems, she would go in and watch cartoons on television. She would sit there and laugh and laugh. What was she doing? She was releasing the healing that God put on the inside. She couldn't find something funny to watch. She'd just go look at my brother Paul. That always made her laugh. I know when I've had a hard day and I feel pressured and uptight, it causes me to have a backache. Right down the center of my spine, I can feel this pain, and I know it's just from tension. And I do just what I'm asking you to do. I'll go play with my children. They always make me laugh. Or I'll watch something funny on television. Invariably, after a few minutes of laughing, that pain is totally gone. It's just like I had a good massage, but it was a lot cheaper. <laughs> the medicine I'm talking about today can save you a lot of money. It can save you from buying sleeping pills and tranquilizers and antidepressants. Laughter releases the body's natural medicines. It can not only bring physical healing, but laughter will help strengthen our relationships. Pause a moment here. You have the, let me just try and summarize this, my fear of using technology. Um, Matt Dillahunty, you, you have the link there on your sheet, so you can look this up on your own and you can watch it. Matt Dillahunty basically says that the church has nothing to say to mental illness, the church has nothing to say to depression, the church has nothing to offer in this area. People who are trying to follow Jesus and uh, struggle with their depression there's nothing in that that they should be even thinking of. And the church is completely out to lunch in this area. People for, should forget the church, forget Jesus, and should simply just go and deal with science and forget anything to do with their relationship with God. So he speaks that as a classic atheist that is presenting this thing this way. Now, here's my question, if you can put the next slide up. These are the questions I want to ask of Joel Osteen and Matt Dillahunty. First of all, why do I have to choose between my humanity and spirituality? Why do I have to make that choice? Phrased another way, why do I have to negate the fact that I'm human? 
these things that I go through normally, migraines, some of you have sleep problems, right? You've had difficulty with sleeping for many, many years, and you're on sleeping pills, you've tried to, you've tried to struggle with sleep. Why can not, that, that not be seen as part of the human experience? Why does it have to be negated that way? Why do I have to negate the fact, Matt Delahunty, that I'm spiritual? Why do I have to forget God in the struggle that I have with depression and in forgetting God with the struggle I have with depression somehow that God is not important? I want God to be important in the midst of the depression. Why does spirituality become an answer to my humanness? Why does it become an answer to my depression? Do I have to, is that the way that I have to view it? Can I walk with my my depression, and at the same time walk deeply with God? And why is my spirituality assessed by my mental health? And for some of us in the room, and I am one of these people, I have come very close to leaving the church on a number of occasions and leaving Christianity fully because I am tired of people saying that in order to be truly spiritual, I have to be triumphal and without problems. And if I have to live triumphantly and without problems, if that's the orientation I have to take, I'm not interested in that kind of God. Because the God who created me was a God who created me human and frail and has brokenness. It's not to preclude healing. It's not to preclude that in some cases people are healed of these things. And there's a sense in which Joel Osteen is accurate to a point. But to make that a categorical statement that somehow our mental health is an implicit assessment, not just of our mental health, but also of our spirituality, is to do damage to a lot of people. Now, I want to give you two examples of spirituality as a part of being human. And I want to start with Martin Luther. Martin Luther was born in 1483 and died in 1546. Many of you, even those of you who may not know church history, at least know the name as somebody who's had a very significant influence on the history of Christianity. He had profound influence on the Christian faith, profound influence on public education, and on politics. Was a Catholic monk and had these very, we might call him now to use, talk about some of the literature that's out there, we might call him a highly sensitive person. He was known when he went to the confessional to confess his sins. He would go on and on and on at great length. And some of the fellow monks were often kept behind because Martin Luther was confessing his sins so much. He was obsessed with his sins and was preoccupied with his sins. He would flog himself physically so badly sometimes that blood poured out of his body. It was that serious for him. He had a very highly sensitive personality and these things really impacted him in a significant way. He took on the Roman Catholic Church and challenged papal authority, which it was a big deal back then in the 1500s. He challenged not only papal authority, but he challenged the indulgences, the various things the Catholics were asked to do so the penalty for their sin would be lessened. He took that on directly. He took on the concept of grace and he brought to the surface for, for that generation that hadn't looked at grace very seriously, he brought grace to the surface and said to the Catholic Church at that time, you're not preaching grace, you're getting people to work for their salvation, this is very wrong and this is inappropriate. He's recognized as the founder of Protestantism, which in still is the category that's often used as, as different than Roman Catholicism, the protest movement, the Protestant movement that went against the Catholic Church in the 1500s, he became the leader of it. 
and argued, well, most people in that culture were saying the only way I can get access to God is through the priest. He came and said, you know what? You can get access to God through Jesus. You don't need the priest to get access to God. That was huge to say that theologically and socially within the context of that church. But in the midst of all of that, he struggled significantly with depression, significantly. And his spiritual successes didn't cancel out his depression. And for those of you who have been offered the either-or platter, that, you know, on the one side, you should be spiritual, and if you're really spiritual, you won't struggle with depression, or if you do struggle with depression, it probably means a lack in your spirituality. Luther, I offer to you, is somebody who's had a huge influence on the history of the church who struggled with depression. And when you read his biography, especially those of us who battle depression, it's very moving. Those of you who don't battle depression will find it depressing, uh, but those of us who do, we find it moving. Four things for him characterized his depression. First of all, aloneness. Aloneness. Not loneliness, aloneness. That was huge for Luther. Huge for him. Secondly, that God had singled him out for suffering. A deep sense that God was out to get him. He had so many struggles, so many problems, such abuse, excommunicated from the Catholic Church, all kinds of things happened to him. And deep inside himself, this profound theologian, he believed that God was after him particularly. Thirdly, he often lost his faith that God is good. I've said publicly before, and I think I'm on good ground, but I think in the 18 and a half years that we've been at CAP, the most significant aspect of CAP for me on a regular basis that is in first place and whatever second is a long way behind is the little liturgy, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. That's the core of the Christian faith. And I have sat in this room, I've sat in the other room at the Lucas Center, and I could not say the words, God is good. I've had Sundays where I can say God is good, but I can't say all the time. And some of you, I've had conversations with some of you about this, you feel the same way. You feel like a heretic in modern evangelicalism. Luther would get that totally. A struggle with believing that God is good. And then lastly, and this is a profound one for one of the great theologians of the church, that God is good to me. Questioning whether in fact God is good to me. This is what Luther was like. He wrote a letter to a friend of his in August, August 2nd, 1527. And look what he said in this letter, August 2nd, 1527. I spent more than a week in death and hell My entire body was in pain, and I still tremble. Completely abandoned by Christ, I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God. But through the prayers of the saints, his friends, God began to have mercy on me and pull my soul from the inferno below. This, friends, is one of our forefathers that started the theology that many people in this room hold to. This is what he said to a friend. And this was his ongoing experience. He didn't pray this prayer and get over it. He didn't write this letter and it was done. This was his life. This is how he experienced life. And when he wrote that great hymn that many of us love, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I want you to look at the first verse of this great hymn that Martin Luther wrote. Only somebody who struggled with depression could write this verse. 
And look at it for a moment. What percentage of the verse, remember this is written by a depressed person who deeply loves God. What percentage of this verse is about God and how great God is? And what percentage of this verse is about his own pain and his own anguish? And sometimes we sing songs, both contemporary songs and old songs, and don't listen to the words carefully. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper. That's all he has to say about God. Listen to the rest of us coming from somebody who understands depression, who gets plucked, his words, from the inferno at times. He's our helper amid the flood. Depressed people get that language. Of mortal ills prevailing. What's mortal ills? That's the experience of being human. Luther's experience of being human that was constantly overcoming him. And notice where he traced much of this. Our ancient foe. And the devil loves to both come in and work with those who are happy and euphoric and get them to accomplish his purposes. And he loves to work with those who are kind of bland and middle of the road and get them to accomplish his purposes. And he loves to work with people who are kind of down and depressed and melancholy and tries to work with them. He's trying to work his plan. And listen to what the depressed person says. The depressed person says, for still our ancient foe, Thus seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. You can hear the anguish in the midst of praising God. And notice here, this is not Joan, Joel Osteen versus Matt Dillahunty. It's not the, that kind of thing. What Luther does is pay due respect and reverence for God and who God is while being honest about his own pain. There's no triumphalism in this, right? So much of contemporary Christian music is very triumphalistic. And you get the sense, if you've really got your life together, and if you're really following Jesus, everything will be great. That's so much of contemporary music. This music is not like that. This music says you can have a deep, deep understanding. Martin Luther, one of the great theologians of all time, you can have a deep understanding of God and at the same time really struggle. And both are there. And both can be brought together. And I suggest to you, if Martin Luther did not struggle, we may not have a mighty fortress as our God. But let's move to another person, a later century, William Cowper, born in 1731, died in 1800, a poet and a writer, wrote many hymns that are still being sung in many churches. His mother died when he was six, and in their house they had maids. And back then, they didn't know how to cope with the humanity lurking behind death, right? If you, don't, if you don't deal with humanity, you don't deal with death well. And so what the maids in the house said to him was, your mother's gone on a journey and she'll be back. He's six years old. She died and he waited day after 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 day. And she never came back. Later in his life, he wrote a, a hymn and a poem that captured this so powerfully, which I'm not going to talk about today. But this was somebody who struggled with depression his whole life. He thought his depression might be solved by occupational career, so he started as a lawyer. And his depression kind of overcame him, and he gave that up. And then one of his friends, John Newton, actually, well-known in church history, Newton talked to him, and he decided, maybe I'll go into Christian ministry and become a pastor. Did that for a while, got totally depressed and got out of that. Eventually, he left the city, moved out in the country, lived a very isolated life in the country alone, 
and was depressed a lot of the time as a poet and as a writer and as somebody with uh, kind of these artistic sensibilities. And when he died, he died in a state of depression. He didn't even end happy and euphoric. And he gave this line about depression, which is such a powerful line. Depression is the malady that claims most compassion and receives the least. But if you do a Google search on William Cowper and actually look at all the hymns that he wrote and walk through those hymns really, really carefully and see what they're like, again, you get this sense, here's somebody that deeply loves God and really struggled with depression and his greater love for God did not make his depression get better. In fact, what he tried to do was bring these two together and for him, his call was to be a poet. His call was to be a musician. His call was to be a hymn writer. And imagine if he had known back in the 1700s Imagine if he had known that today we're going to listen to one of the songs he wrote in his depression all these years later. Imagine, out of his artistic expression. And again, his depression was in parallel with a deep love and concern for God. So as we listen to this song, The Tempest, which he wrote in 1779, it's a long time ago. I want you to hear the words and pick up the sort of the tone of these words, not as, is this a man who feels like, in order to be human, I can't be spiritual, or in order to be spiritual, I can't be human. Is this a man who deeply loves God and is struggling at the same time? I invite you to listen to The Tempest. The billows swell, the winds are high, clouds overcast, my wintry sky. Out of the death to the alcohol, my fears are great, my strength is small. Amidst the roaring of the sea, my soul still hangs her hope on thee. Thy constant love, thy faithful care, is all it saves me from despair. O oh Lord, the pilot part perform, and guard and guide me through the storm. Defend me from its threatening ill Control the wave, say peace be still Dangers of every shape and name Attend the followers of the Lamb Who leave the world's deceitful shore And leave it Tossed and half a wreck My saviour through the floods I seek Let neither winds nor stormy main Force back my shattered bark again Oh Lord, the pilot's part perform And guard and guide me through the storm Defend me from its threatening in Control the wave, say peace be still
Now, one of the things that's important to us at CAP um, and has been for many years is that we don't just talk about things theoretically and conceptually, but we believe that they need to be embodied. And so I'm going to ask Jan Bryant uh, to come up and join me at the front. If you could uh, give her your mic, Kim, that would be great. And some of you know Jan. She's been a CAP a long time. Jan will be the one speaking next week about depression in children and youth. But a very significant event happened in Jan's life on May 11th, 1993. And I've asked her if she'd be willing to talk a little bit about that event and tie it into this subject of depression and tie it into the subject of being spiritual and being human. So Jan, thank you for your willingness to do this. It's not an easy subject to discuss, I realize, but tell us what happened on May 11th, 1993. Most of you have met um, two of my children, Margot and Graham. There's an older girl named Lindsay, and she died on that date. Uh, she was a student at the Waldorf School. I was the school administrator. During recess, she fell 10 feet out of a tree and hit her head on a stump. I was the first person there. I did the first responder stuff until the ambulance came. I rode in the ambulance with her. They took her into surgery and were not able to save her. And uh, probably five or six hours after she fell, she died. It's a long time ago in some respects, but emotionally it's not a long time ago. What what was that day like for you? Can you? I mean, it's it's a horrific story. She was how old? She was ten. Ten. So you're the first person there. Um, what? Well, other people found her, but they just stood around. So I was the first person that actually was. I was the most qualified first aid person there. So. Okay. What was the experience like that day for you? What I mean, was there a numbness? What what characterized the the emotions you were going through on that particular day? Uh, well, as soon as we got in the ambulance, I started praying, and I prayed the whole time until the doctor came and told me that she had died. And then it was like uh, I'd been stabbed in the heart. Felt like a giant fist had punched through my chest and grabbed a chunk of my heart and torn it right out. So physical pain, there was no numbness. It was yeah. just very raw physical pain. And you were a Christian at that time, so you're praying in the ambulance. Um, why did you pray in the ambulance? What I mean, there's, it's an obvious answer, but why, why did you pray? Because that's what you do I believe you when you're crying out for help. That's who you cry to. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Did he answer? Well, not the answer I wanted. I was pretty clear about what I asked, but... Interestingly enough, when I was praying, I was very clear that I wanted to, to live and survive. But then I said, thy will be done. Hmm. Which, like I knew, it's not my hand. Yeah. So, yes, when if that was his will and that was done, I had a real hard time with that too. Because what you said about Martin Luther, that's exactly what I thought. It's like, what did she ever do to excuse my French, piss you off? Or what did I ever do that was so terrible that this has to happen to our family? Yeah. And why is the big question. And I struggled a long time. And I, I did ask God why, and a lot. But he was not forthcoming with an answer. Yeah. 
And that's the biggest struggle, I think, is when terrible things happen, is you ask why. If, if you could tell me why, maybe I could make some sense of this. Maybe I could live with this. Maybe I could process it in some way. But there's no answer to that question. Okay. And I think the turning point for healing w is probably when you stop asking why and you start saying how. How am I going to live the rest of my life carrying this much pain and sorrow? Okay. I was in uh, Cuba once, and there's a town on the south shore of Cuba called Trinidad, and it's a World Heritage Site. And there's a church there that's hundreds of years old. And the interesting thing about this church is all around the outside um, corner, in, in the s inside the church, are these life-size dioramas of the life of Christ. And they've come from all over the world, from sculptors and artists everywhere, but they're life-size. Anyway, there's one of the cru crucifixion, and Mary is kneeling on the ground, tears pouring down her face, and there's a sword right through her heart. Hmm. And I was like, yep, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Somebody got it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Christians can be really unhelpful in times like this. They say all kinds of things like, you should be happy she's with Jesus. And... Uh, my, my least favorite one was, well, God needed another rosebud in his garden. I was like, God's the creator. God needs a rosebud. He can create one. He doesn't need to take mine. So um, there were times, like, I had a dog, which was Lindsay's dog. She'd wanted a dog her whole life. We got, adopted this dog, and a month later, she died. So now I've got this dog. Anyway, the dog and I, we would, there was a ravine near us, we would go through the woods and I would be shouting at God and saying things to God and expressing my extreme unhappiness with God. And, you know, people said, well, you can't be mad at God. It's like, I am mad at God and I think he can handle it. Hmm. At, at least we're still in conversation. He yeah. may not be talking to me, but I'm talking to him. Yeah. So, uh, you know, God is good all the time. I choke on that one too. It's like mm, May 11th, maybe not so good, at least not from my perspective. Yeah. Now, I'm living now in the faith that when I cross over the threshold, it will all be clear to me. All my questions will be answered. There will be some good reason for this and it'll be clear to me or maybe not, it'll just be fine, but whatever. Um, yeah. It's not fine. And yeah, you know, sometimes people talk about closure or you know some kind of resolution, or you get over it. And um, I'm the co-leader of Compassionate Friends on North Shore. It's a self-help support group for parents who've experienced the death of one or more of their children. You don't get over it. Yeah. All you can hope for is to learn to live with it in a way that's healthy and life-giving to you. Yeah. Yeah. As you know, we're talking about depression this month, and you're gonna talk about it with children and youth next week. Um, Obviously, there's many reasons why people get depressed, but as you know, one of the reasons people get depressed is because they have a traumatic event happen in their life. Uh, did you go through in a sort of a clinical, situational kind of depression during this time after Lindsay passed away? Uh, well, there would be something very odd about you if you did not show the symptoms of depression in mm. a situation where you should be depressed. Mm. But I make a distinction in depression between situational depression, which makes sense. I mean, you're in a situation where it would be very unusual for you not to be depressed. Yeah. And clinical depression, which is caused by chemical imbalance or other things that are going on. Yeah. So um, some 
well, just talking about this group that I go to, like everybody there is depressed, but we all get each other and people don't say stupid things and we laugh about the stupid things that other people say. Um, but there's healing there because you're with people that get it. Mm. And they're, yeah, it's really helpful. But if you looked at any one of us at any time during our grief journey, you could say, well, you seem depressed. It's like, well, of course I am, my child's dead. I mean, how else am I supposed to feel? Yeah. But very often clinicians, psychiatrists, prescribe antidepressants for these grieving parents. Doesn't do anything. Mm. Because they don't have a biochemical imbalance in their brain. Yeah. They have a situational depression. Yeah. So I think there's a distinction between those two things. Yeah. I've been talking today about this relationship between the spiritual and the human, and uh, your walks with the dog sound like Martin Luther in so many ways, like <laughs> blaspheming God. I mean, the great theologian says he blasphemed God and he was plucked from the inferno as he's doing this. Um, and yet the Christians in your life were doing the rosebud thing. H how did you deal with that? Like this, this tension between trying to live into the human and the spiritual together. My goodness, Lindsay's died at 10. I mean, that's horrific. And yet people saying like, Jesus is really happy she's there. She's going to add a rosebud to his garden. Well, how did you put that together? Or did you? No, not well. <laughs> um, yes, I tried not to be rude to people who'd say ignorant things, but sometimes like, all you can do is just stand there dumbfounded and shake your head and walk away. Um, so th really the church and the people in the church weren't that helpful to me with their sort of platitudes. Uh, the most helpful people were the people who just came along beside me and didn't know the answers either or didn't have any, you know, cures or strategies for what would make me feel better. Yeah, yeah. So they weren't trying to fix you, whereas people in the church are trying to fix you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, you, and when you have a child die, you, pr you pretty soon figure out who your friends are because lots of people see you coming and they just run away because they can't even look at you. They can't, they don't get it. And you can't, like, why would you want to? I did have a friend who said, I can imagine what you're going through. And then he stopped himself. He said, no, I can't really. Hmm. And I said, no, you can imagine it for like half a second and then your brain just screams no and you can't. Yeah. And he said, yes. And I said, but that half a second when you imagine what it's like, that's what my life is like 24 hours a day, every single day. Yeah. And you can't imagine it. Yeah. But you know, when you're in it, you just have to find ways through it and yeah, God and I have a good working relationship now hmm. yeah. but you know we we struggled we had our struggles yeah so Lindsay would have been 36 this year she would um what's the journey with Lindsay like now for you all these years later uh she's still a big part of our life there are certain members of the family who cannot or don't talk about her but my Lindsay, uh, like Margot and Graham and I, we talk. And when the kids come over and they're together, the first thing they do is they pull out the p all the photo albums and they look through and they tell the stories and mm. they like to remember back to their childhood and her. And yeah, they're quite open about it. I'm open about it, but yeah. other people not so much. Yeah. So yeah, yeah sh I, f I feel like she's part of my life still. Yeah. And do you have, uh, on this human spiritual struggling with God and yet the pain, that's going to go for the rest of your life, I assume. Like, you haven't got that all figured out by now. 
oh, I don't expect that's going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah. No. So do you have, uh, wh what does it look like emotionally then now? What, what do you go through when, when Lindsay's very focused now and her death is focused? What's that like? Well, the, the most difficult thing about having a child die is every time, uh, in the beginning, every time you think of that child, it could be a happy memory, but then the sword goes straight back in again because she's not here. Yeah. So as time passes and you do your grief work and you just sit with it and let it be real and experience it, that now when the happy memories come, it's a happy memory. Yeah. I don't have the sword through my chest anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing this. It's not a, it's not a very, it's a story that's really hard to hear Mm -hmm. obviously for all of us, but uh, a story that's much harder to tell in many respects. So appreciate you doing that and look forward to you speaking on a, a different subject next week on depression in youth and children. So thank you, Jane. You're welcome.